So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for group chats that we have with marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as Yoromi from Social. In today's episode, we have a chat with Jonathan Barkle, who's a co-founder and CEO of Air Garage. So Air Garage provides a full-stack parking management solution for parking garage and lot owners. They've pivoted from originally starting off as an Airbnb for parking into more of a managed platform solution and have scaled to become a leader in the space. They're also backed by top investors like Floodgate, Founders Fund, and A16Z. So this is a really great chat with Jonathan, where we got to learn more about the founding story and first steps for starting Air Garage, some of the challenges that they faced originally starting off as an Airbnb for parking, what led to them being more of a full stack and managed solution. We did an overview and deep dive into Air Garage today, got to learn more about what the fundraising journey has been like, and also had a great group Q&A. So really enjoyed this chat with Jonathan, and I know you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So Jonathan, welcome to the group chat. And I've uh, been looking forward to having you join us for a while now and now learning more about Air Garage. So it's great to have you join us today. And I'd like to start off with saying, you know, huge thanks for taking the time to do so in advance. So, you know, before we really dive into things at the Air Garage, I think it might be great if you can start off by briefly sharing uh, your background for those that might not know you. And uh, then what led you to starting Air Garage? Yeah, no, thanks for having me today. Uh, thanks everyone for joining and for listening in. You know, my background is relatively limited prior to Air Garage, uh, just because I was actually a student when I started Air Garage. So I wound up dropping out of Arizona State University to start the company. And, you know, when I was going to ASU, I was studying physics and economics. So, you know, I was just doing research at Arizona State University, doing research in basically semiconductors and meteorites at different times and things like that. But the thing I always, you know, sort of tell people jokingly is that when I went to school, I was studying physics and economics because I wanted to start a space company. And it's kind of like if you rubbed a genie's lamp and the genie always grants your wish, but kind of takes your, your, your ask very literally or twists your ask. And so it's, you know, rub the genie lamp, ask to start a space company. And, and I did wind up with a space company. It's just a very different kind of space company than what I had in mind. It's a parking space company instead of a outer space company, which, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, so, you know, how we started Air Garage. So my co-founders, Scott, Chelsea, and I, we started Air Garage, like I said, when we were in school. And we originally started the company because, you know, we had the same pain point that pretty much every student has, which is that parking on campus is too expensive. It's inconvenient. It's very hard to use. And, you know, they rent you this space out in some really far away lot called Lot 59, and it's $800 a year. And you know, even when you pay $800 a year, you don't have a guaranteed space and they take away your space for football games. So it's a pain point that a lot of students had, right? And I, when I think about student startups, right, there's kind of three problems that I think that all university students think exist in the world. And it's basically boils down to textbooks are too expensive, finding friends and social events on campus is too hard and parking on campus sucks. And so if you're a student, you basically wind up starting a you know, company related to those things, because to you, that's the entire world of problems. And so naturally, we started a parking company. And at the time when we started Air Garage, it really started out as a very basic thing, right? It was it was Airbnb for parking, if you will, in that we were going door to door in the neighborhoods near the campus, and we were signing up owners and, and homeowners basically near the campus, because there's two neighborhoods right next to the campus, and getting them to rent out their driveway to students. And so that was the original instantiation of Air Garage while we were students. You know, started out as a very much a side hustle thing we were doing just as a cool project on the side. And it has grown and evolved and morphed a ton since there to the point that now, you know, Air Garage, we manage 250 plus parking facilities, parking lots and parking garages in 40 different states. So it has changed a lot since those beginning days. 
Uh, but I'm happy to get into all the details on all those different aspects. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, certainly. That's a really cool story. Now, thanks for sharing more with us. Definitely a lot we're going to get into. But I guess, you know, going back to the uh, very beginning, though, you know, what were the uh, actual first steps that you uh, took to start it as a marketplace, you know, being an Airbnb, quote unquote, for uh, parking at the time? Yeah, we tried to start as as scrappily as possible. So, you know, Scott and I and Chelsea started talking about the idea for Air Garage in probably late 2016, early 2017. And the first thing that we wanted to do was basically test would homeowners want to do this? Would they want to sign up for this crazy idea? Because we basically, we knew that the students would want to do it, right? The students were always complaining. We were students ourselves. We knew that the demand would be there if we could get the supply. And so we really focused our efforts on the supply side of the marketplace and trying to figure out would homeowners want to list in the driveway? And we wanted to figure out how could we do that as basically cheaply and quickly as possible. And so I think in December of 2016, we started out, we put up a very basic landing page. And, and we started out by putting out flyers on people's doors. And I just went around and put these flyers on people's doorknobs. It was probably the worst design flyer you've ever seen in your life. You know, it's one one sheet of paper. It's basically just a photo of a driveway with a really crappy version of our original logo on there. And, you know, I think it it just said on the flyer, it just said with no context, want to make extra money this holiday season, question mark, and then had our URL, which at the time, the URL that we had bought was sellmydriveway.com, which is a really sketchy URL to send somebody to. And so you go to this URL on this flyer, and it would take you to this really basic landing page that we had built in probably WordPress at the time. One page, it's just all orange backgrounds, white text on the orange background. And it just has one paragraph that says, you know, homeowners use Air Garage to rent out their space and get extra cash, and students use Air Garage to find affordable parking, right? And then there was two buttons. It was, you know, either list a space or rent a space. The rent a space button, if you were a driver, didn't do anything, so don't click on it. And then the list a space button, if you clicked on it, took you to a Google form. And that Google form asked you for way too much personal information, but it was basically a survey for homeowners to fill out to basically for us to assess the market. And what was remarkable about that first experiment was basically we tried to do it as obviously leanly as possible and try to build nothing, just test the market. And we put out probably about 150 of these flyers. It's the sketchiest flyer you've ever seen, some weird URL, sellmydriveway.com, which still points to airgarage.com if you go to it today. And then this really bad landing page and then a Google form that asks you for way too much info. And even though it was such a bad process, I think out of the 150 flyers that we put up, we had 11 homeowners sign up to, to start using the service. And we were like, hey, you know, there's something here. If, if 11 people will sign up from this sketchy URL and terrible website, then if we build an actual platform, they will definitely sign up. And so all of those responses just went into a Google sheet. And then we basically used that Google sheet as the original version of Air Garage, where we just showed students the Google sheet with like a screenshot of a Google map of like the locations on it. Uh, so that was kind of Air Garage version 0.001, I guess you could say. And then from there in sort of the spring of 2017, once we had seen that owners wanted it, Scott's built and Scott built more, spent more time building out the actual platform and making it look more legitimate. And then I spent the summer of 2017 basically going door to door every single day, just learning how to do sales door to door. Because as you can imagine, I was a physics student and didn't really like doing sales or talking to people or anything like that. So it was definitely a, a learning trial by fire way of, of learning sales. But really, the original how we got started was just trying to be as scrappy as possible with that experiment. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely a great example of, you know, be, not only being scrappy kind of with the MVP, but uh, doing the things that uh, don't scale to get some initial kind of uh, signaling on feedback. So, you know, of course, uh, Air Garage looks, uh, you know, uh, much more different today. And as far as, you know, the direction that you took uh, being uh, full stack and, and more managed, 
you know, so what were some of those like initial challenges, maybe uh, as you start off being an Airbnb for parking um, and, you know, kind of insights that led to then, uh, you know, pivoting? Yeah. So we, you know, started out with the Airbnb for parking, the driveway rental platform that was kind of Air Garage 1.0, right? And so we started that, like I said, first version was December 2016, built out the real platform in 2017. And I spent all of summer 2017 going door to door, getting driveway owners signed up. And we actually did get a lot of people signed up. And we then found that students were wanting the service so badly that before we, we basically got our, our lesson in launch before you think you should, because in July of 2017, we we're still working on the site. It was very buggy. And some student named Martin just found our website somehow. I have no idea how and rented a space through our website. And it was funny because Scott was at the time interning at CERN in Switzerland. So it's like middle of the night there. And I was on a camping trip with my parents. And so I'm in the middle of the forest calling Scott frantically being like, hey, you know, somebody tried to book a spot on our website and it broke all these different things. But then that was what enabled us to like fix all of the bugs that that person discovered because they booked that first spot. And so we wound up selling all out all of the spots in summer of 2017 going into the school year. And then we quickly realized this is a very supply constrained marketplace and the marketplace is driven by the supply. There's so much demand, we cannot fulfill it. So how do we get more supply? And I think that was our first lesson. And whenever you're running a marketplace, you always have to identify which side of the marketplace is the constraining factor and focus almost all of your energy on driving that part of the marketplace. And even still to this day, the vast majority of our effort at Air Garage even though the business is very different, is focused on how do we get more supply because the supply drives the demand, not the other way around. And I think that that's where actually a lot of people that have tried to start parking businesses in the past have gone wrong as they've focused on the wrong side of that marketplace. And really, you know, the lesson that sort of led us to where we are today was that, you know, when you're running a marketplace, you you have the two types of marketplaces, right? You have the Uber marketplace where you have a very high frequency transaction, but it's a low dollar value. And you have the Airbnb transaction where it's high value of dollars spent, but only, you know, infrequent use. And we were sort of stuck in this death trap middle ground where it was not a very frequent transaction because we were selling only monthly parking at the time. And it was relatively low dollar value because parking near campus wasn't that expensive. And so it was like, you can't really make a business out of that. And so we started figuring out, hey, we're supply constrained. We can't possibly get enough spaces and there's not a lot of value to be squeezed out here. So we need to figure out like, where is the supply that we can actually derive value from? And that was probably in spring of 2018, where we started working with these churches near the campus and they actually had, you know, 50 spaces. So it's like, okay, if we can onboard a supplier onto the marketplace that has 50 spaces, so there's one space in your driveway, obviously there's economics work a lot better for sort of onboarding supply and things like that. And then we evolved that from just doing monthly parking with a few churches to actually running the full parking lot and the full transient sort of day-to-day, you know, hourly parking for this other church. And really, I think the, the, you know, the interesting thing there was just how much volume we started seeing going through the, the platform as soon as we onboarded those churches. And in onboarding those was kind of our first lesson. And hey, we have to be more than just a listing service in order to provide value in this specific marketplace. And I think that's where our sort of belief around the way marketplaces has evolved uh, from the last 15 years or so. It's like the original marketplaces that came out in in the world were all really these like 2005 to 2010 era marketplaces. And they all, if you think about them, were really just like listing services or arbitrage services. So if you think about something, you know, like an Expedia, where originally really their business model was just that hotels are not online and you need to book a hotel. And we're really good at being the intermediary between those two things and running a lot of Google ads. That was a marketplace that you could build in 2005 to 2010 and, and make a lot of money because there was a lot of arbitrage there. 
But then as more and more businesses have come online and had those basic presences exist, you have to provide a lot more value deeper in the stack of the marketplace in order to you know have something that you are building into a sustainable business. And so that's where in summer of 2018, we basically shifted our whole focus to this sort of full stack approach where we manage entirely the supply of the marketplace. So we partner with a property owner, a landlord. We basically take over their property as if we were a property management company. We do everything involved in running it day to day. So we do the payment collection, the advertising, the enforcement, picking up trash, cleaning snow, all these things. And then we are able to open that supply onto the marketplace for consumers as a result of that. But in order to get that supply and get 100% of it, we have to do all of that management. And really what we are at the end of the day is like a parking management company, but we think about it as much more of a marketplace for consumers in the long term, where consumers sign up for Air Garage, they have their license plate and credit card on file, they have the seamless experience parking in all of our facilities, things like that. And you know the sort of corollary to that would be, I mentioned Expedia before, there's been other apps that have tried to be this sort of consumer marketplace for parking, but they really haven't changed the parking industry fundamentally because they're just this layer that sits on top of all of this old school machinery that works in the background. So there's you know terrible integrations, which lead to bad consumer experiences, and really only like five or so percent of total parking volume goes through those apps at this point. And so our philosophy is just if you want to actually change the industry, you need to be able to capture 100 percent of that parking volume. So you have to be able to do all of this sort of full stack management that goes into managing the supply of the marketplace. Yeah, no, that's a really great. And I'm uh, glad you mentioned the, uh, you know, the importance of us sol solving for the hard side in the early stages. So something we're uh, often talking about here, of course, is uh, you know, marketplace founders and teams. So uh, it does sound like, you know, there's a, a somewhat, um, I would say, like an industry that you're operating in that's, uh, you know, it has a lot of complexities to it. Um, and, you know, you're able to come in and add a lot of value, you know, uh, being, being more fully managed. So could you maybe share a little bit more uh, about, you know, what some of those uh, specific kind of uh, problems that you're uh, helping solve for and then, you know, ways uh, that you're, you're able to add value as a, as a platform and more uh, full stack management? Yeah, definitely. So Air Garage, the way to think about Air Garage is that we're effectively, you know, sort of a technology driven property management firm. So if you've ever lived in an apartment building or an office building, you know that there is a, a firm that is managing it day to day, making sure that trash gets taken out, making sure that tenants have what they need and all those things. So we basically do that, but for parking lots. So we have to collect the payments from drivers, like I mentioned before. So we have this whole system for people to pay either through a web payment system, which is the vast majority of people pay or through our mobile app. And then on top of that, we also have to make sure that we're coordinating vendors and things to do trash pickup, to do cleaning, all those types of things. And then on top of that, we also have sort of a third side to our marketplace. So there's there's drivers, there's owners, and then we also have this third side, which we, which we call the Space Force. And that Space Force is basically our enforcement team, which goes through parking lots and enforces to make sure that people have actually paid. And that's been actually one of the critical components of how we've been able to scale. I mean, we manage, like I said, 250 properties across 40 states. Most traditional parking companies, they can't enter a new market unless they hire a full-time general manager. But we operate properties in most major metro areas at this point, Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, all the major metros. And then also in places like, you know, Clarksburg, West Virginia, which is a town of 14,000 people in rural West Virginia. It's like you can't operate there as a traditional management company because you have a, so much overhead, right? And so our technology that we've built and the enforcement method of doing enforcement that we've built through this sort of marketplace of gig workers that do enforcement for us is what enables us to operate nationally and drive a lot of value for owners. And so the interesting thing for us as a business that we sort of do uniquely is is we come to the owner and we say, okay, look, the basics that you should expect from any management company that's going to run your lot is that they're going to pick up the trash, they're going to, you know, 
take out the snow. They're going to do these basic things. But then the question is, what are they doing on top of that to increase your gross revenue? And for us, that's the name of the game because our incentive is aligned directly with the owner where most management companies, they just pass through all of the expenses of managing the property onto the owner's PL and they just pass through as many expenses as they can get away with until the owner starts crying uncle. And so we're going to them saying, hey, we're going to work on a revenue share. We're going to cover all the expenses of managing the property out of our portion of that revenue share. And then what that means is that our incentive is how do we increase your revenue and therefore increase the volume that's through flowing through our marketplace through things like real-time dynamic pricing that is experiment-driven, through things like online advertising, through things like better technology. Uh, all of those things are going to increase the GMV that's flowing through our marketplace and through your property, which then makes both of us more money, which is the best case. So there's definitely a lot that goes into managing parking properties, uh, probably a lot more than I'm even successfully describing right now. There's just a lot of dirty work that goes into it. But then really where our differentiation is, is that, hey, on top of that dirty work that we're going to do, there's all this technology that we've built that has never really existed in the industry in a meaningful way, even though people have been talking about it for 20 years. And the only reason we can do all of that is because we're this full stack, vertically integrated company that then can onboard supply to that marketplace and then add a lot of value to it. Uh, that's uh, really interesting to learn more about. So I guess, you know, uh, what goes into kind of like uh, launching a new market or maybe, you know, uh, going into like opening up uh, some of the different uh, parking spaces that you operate? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, so we basically have taken a very different approach than I think a lot of physical world marketplaces have. So when we were first getting started, you know, sort of the, I don't want to bash on VCs in any way, shape or form. They, they look at a lot of businesses, right? And they have frameworks for how they think about businesses and they sort of have mental models that they will carry from one business to the other. And so the thing that you have to keep in mind as a founder is that your business may not necessarily be the same as all of the other businesses that they've looked at. And, you know, they're all different. So if you think about something like Uber or Lyft, those businesses took very market by market approaches. And so they would go to a market, they would do a big launch and they would, you know, try to onboard as many drivers and, and, and riders at the same time as possible. And that's how they would attain a critical mass in that market for us we're able to attain a critical mass on an individual location by location basis. And so going and trying to constrain ourselves to market launches is actually not the right approach. And one other example business that I'll, that I'll reference here is like, if you think about Open Door, they took a very market by market approach, right? And the reason that they're able to do that is because their market that they're operating in is single family homes and selling single family homes, right? And there's a ton of supply and demand for single family homes. And so there's a lot of liquidity in that marketplace, right? So you can go to Phoenix and build an entire business just in Phoenix and then expand to Atlanta subsequent to that as a separate market. And you can take that market-driven approach and it makes sense to do that. For us, we're operating in this parking market supply constraint market where there's you know a lot of parking lots in the world, but they don't change operators all that often. I mean, you know, we have a really good retention rate. So I think we turn less than one and a half percent per year in terms of our GMV. So really strong retention rate, but better than the industry, but still the industry doesn't turn over sort of operators very often. And so for us, that meant we needed to open the aperture and go nationwide from day one and be willing to take on a property anywhere and everywhere in order to grow at the rate that we want to grow at. Because if we constrained ourselves to just Los Angeles or just Phoenix or just Atlanta, we wouldn't be able to get enough supply in those marketplaces to grow as fast as we want to. And so we took really a very national approach. I mean, you know, our first properties were in Phoenix, and then our second properties were in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and our third properties were in Austin, Texas. So very much all over the place. And really what we focused on was how do you make sure that the unique economics of every location that we onboard 
make sense as an individual location so that we can take that nationwide approach so that we can say, hey, yes, you have a property in a market that we don't operate in yet. We can confidently make that work with the economics that we know that we need to have for enforcement and payments and vendors and all those sorts of things. We can take on a property anywhere in the country as long as it's making a certain revenue threshold and operate it successfully, which then means that we can you know, open the aperture on where we're targeting deals for since the liquidity is so low in our marketplace. Yeah, I can only imagine uh, how nuanced some of the uh, markets are too, as well. So yeah. So uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to uh, discuss too is uh, is pricing, right? And I've uh, you know, I was listening to a podcast that you uh, you did before, and you were mentioning uh, that you know that you uh, do dynamic pricing, so you know, based off supply and demand, of course, for uh, you know, for some of the spaces and and different um, cities, um, and even kind of like on a neighborhood level. So could you maybe share, uh, you know, how you think about that, and you know, maybe some of the kind of like uh, interesting observations or uh, or learnings around uh, dynamic pricing? Yeah, so dynamic pricing is really interesting and pricing in general for parking is really interesting. And the supply and demand problem of parking is actually very interesting in and of itself, where I think most people, when you think about parking, you think, okay, if you're in a downtown of a major city, yes, you're going to pay for parking. But if you're in like rural or suburban or, you know, small town America, you're not going to pay for parking because there's just not that many people, right? And what we found in our experience is that you know parking is this very localized supply demand problem where as soon as you have any small radius where the demand for obviously people being in that area is greater than the supply you now have a parking problem and the best way to solve that parking problem is through the economics of charging for parking right and and this is where actually a lot of cities have gone awry in the last 50 or 100 years is that they're making all of their parking free because they think that that's what people want. And then that induces demand for people to drive to that area. And then suddenly they don't have enough parking and then they build more parking. And then you wind up with cities that look like Houston in the 1980s, just all surface lots, right? And so our philosophy is you can build better cities if you, first of all, collect data about how parking is being used, when it's being used, why it's being used, and then by optimizing the pricing and charging the appropriate rate for parking such that you're not subsidizing parking implicitly by not charging for it, right? And so there's a lot to think about with cities there, but on a, such a localized level, supply and demand can be imbalanced, right? You would think of, uh, you know, there was a city we managed a parking garage for a municipality. It's a town of 18,000 people in Minnesota. You would think a town of 18,000 people doesn't have a parking problem and doesn't have any paid parking, but it turns out that when all 18,000 people want to be on the same three blocks on Friday night to get all the restaurants and bars, now suddenly you do have a parking problem. And so you have to have paid parking. And so that's really interesting in that there's so many niches out there of parking demand and supply and balance that you wouldn't think of necessarily. And so one of the things that we do uniquely that nobody else in the industry does is real-time experiment-driven, data-driven dynamic pricing. And that's done on a per lot basis at different times, different days of the week, different seasons, all this sort of stuff. I'll explain how that works in a second. But the reason it doesn't exist in the industry to date is because the, the most of the companies that are running parking lots are just these traditional management companies, right? They are, you know, old school property management businesses, not technology companies, and they buy all of their systems from third parties. So they buy a gate machine from a third party. They buy a payment machine from a third party. They buy an app from a different party. They buy their backend software from a third party, right? And they're all from different third parties. And even within different locations that they manage, they'll have different systems within each of those garages. And so you can imagine that this becomes a huge nightmare for integrations because you have a non-technology company integrating five different systems and trying to make them work together. And then they also aren't software engineering companies or technology companies. And so they can't actually change those systems. And so the unique thing that we've done is we have built all of our own systems in-house. So our payment system, our enforcement system, our license plate reading cameras, everything is our own technology. So it's all like sort of inherently integrated in a deep functional way that nobody else's is. 
which then enables things like, hey, we control the payment system and we can see all of the downstream metrics of that payment system. So when you're a driver pulling into an air garage facility, what we'll actually do is we basically internally call this like ABCD plus testing where, you know, you've heard of AB testing, but it's, hey, we can segment drivers that are pulling into a facility into different buckets. So you will pull in at the exact same time as somebody else and be shown a slightly different rate structure. And then we can track how all of the people that are being shown the two different rate structures or X number of rate structures are responding to that. So are they parking or are they not parking or are they leaving the facility? How long are they staying for? How much are they paying in total? And then, you know, what was the review that they left at, at the end of the session and do they come back to the facility and all these downstream metrics then inform what is the appropriate rate structure the douche ha should have in this facility. And we've seen a lot of success with this where those parking lots we've taken over that were, you know, well run before by a local company that, you know, was doing a fine job, but didn't have any of this technology advantage. And we've increased their gross revenue by like 40% year over year, even though traffic was the same. And it's just because the lot was mispriced because they didn't understand the data behind their pricing. And most companies set their pricing by just sticking a finger in the wind and checking the rates in the local area, you know, once every two years or so. Right. So it's really like all powered by this sort of full stack. Hey, we own the entire technology stack. It's sort of like maybe the best comparison for this is the Apple walled garden that everybody talks about, where if you're really in the Apple ecosystem and you truly adopt it, then they have these really great experiences that you get to have because of that. It's the same thing here where we're sort of very strict about we only use our own technology and we use the same technology in every garage, which then means that every garage we onboard, we have more resources to pour back into making that technology better, which then helps us make more money and helps the owner make more money, which then gets us more properties. So yeah, dynamic pricing is done in a very sophisticated way on an individual property basis by running these experiments to see how drivers react to the pricing that we're doing to then figure out what the optimal price is. And I want to clarify also, just in case this, you know, I know this is being recorded and somebody might come after me later. The optimal price does not always mean raising the price. Sometimes prices are too high and you need to lower them to get people to park in your lot. It can go both ways. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that as far as, you know, using that as kind of a lever there for, for some of the uh, um, empty spots there. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm used to seeing, you know, the uh, the sign that's changing, right? It could be 15 bucks, could be 25. It just kind of changes on discretion from uh, from some of the operators there in the parking lots. And also, too, I guess it's worth uh, noting, don't, I, I believe, don't you uh, charge as far as like on the usage side uh, for the actual like time that, you know, someone parks there versus saying, you know, like an hour or half day or a day? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things we did when we started Air Garage was basically just we didn't know anything about parking at all. We have no experience in parking. We have no background in parking, except now, you know, having run this business as long as we have. And so one of the things we did, obviously, from the beginning was just ask ourselves the questions of, well, why are things done the way that they're done in the parking industry? And, and should they be done that way? And, and two examples of that from the very beginning that we built in to our system that don't exist in other locations. One, which you mentioned is, you know, if you think about most parking meters or places that you park, right, what happens is you go up to the meter and you kind of have to just guess how long you're going to be there for, right? When you get there, you put a certain amount on the meter and then you have to just hope that you're correct about that time. And inevitably what happens 99% of the time is either you wind up paying for too much parking and you leave before your meter is expired, or you wind up paying for too little and then you're stressed because you're in a restaurant and you're worried that you're going to get ticketed or towed because you didn't pay for enough time and you just have to guess, right? And it's like, why do you have to guess? And if you actually trace back the history, why do most parking systems and parking apps, even today, even now in the software, you still have to guess upfront, how much time am I going to use and try to pay for that amount of time? Why does it work that way? If you look back at the history, 
the parking meter was invented sometime in like the 1930s. And the original parking meters, the way that they worked is you physically inserted a coin into the meter and it physically wound up the device. And then it was a spring-loaded device that would twist backwards in time. And so that all carried through all the way to today where parking meters, or sorry, not even parking meters, parking apps mostly still use that philosophy because it's just a skeuomorphized version of the ancient parking meter. And it doesn't have to work that way anymore, right? So one of the first things we did was when we started it, it's like, hey, when you get to the air garage lot, you push start. And when you get done, you push end and you pay for the exact amount of time that you use. So if you park for an hour and 36 minutes, we charge you for an hour and 36 minutes. We don't charge you for two hours. We don't charge you for one hour, charge you for exactly what you used, prorated down to the minute. And we got a lot of really good feedback from drivers immediately about that, where they were like, oh, it's kind of a cool dopamine hit that like my parking bill wasn't $4, it was $3.67 or whatever exact amount I used. So that was one example of things we questioned. The other example is if you are a loyal customer of a parking facility in pretty much anywhere in the country at this point, right? And you park there every single day and you pay the machine or you pay through their app every single day, you're a loyal customer. But then on the you know one day you're in a rush, you're late for an appointment, you forget to pay. What are they going to do? They're going to ticket or tow your car. And they have no memory of you being a loyal customer. They have no idea that you park there every single day. And they treat you just like everybody else, which is just absurd. And our whole philosophy is, you know, it's at the time, 2018, we have a thing called the database. We know who you are. We have a customer profile. We have your phone number, your license plate, your credit card on file. So if you park in one of our lots ever and you pay us ever, or you pay for a ticket that we've left you or whatever it happens to be, we now have your info on file. Next time you do park with us, if we see that you're in the lot and you didn't pay for the day, we're just going to automatically charge you for the day of parking and send you a message to say, Hey, as a courtesy, instead of ticketing or towing your car, we just charge you for your parking. Because at the end of the day, what we want is for you to pay for your parking. And what you want is to pay for your parking. And so why wouldn't we just remember who you are and charge you automatically if you're in our lot for a second or third or however many times, especially if you're a loyal customer, right? You have been there hundreds of times. Why would we ticket or immobilize your car? And that's just the way that the industry works because they just don't have technology really baked in at a fundamental level into most of these businesses. This is a super interesting to learn more about, but uh, I'm, I, I think uh, you and I could probably go on for uh, quite some time, but I'm getting some uh, messages from my founders here. So I want to make sure that we can uh, save time for the uh, group Q&A. Um, right before we do though, so uh, of course you've raised some from some uh, really awesome investors like a Floodgate Founders Fund and then uh, A16Z. So could you maybe share a little bit more about you know what the uh, fundraising journey has been like? Yeah. So we raised our Series A in Q4 of 2021. That was from Andreessen Horowitz. Raised our seed round in May of 2019 from Floodgate and Founders Fund, like you said. Yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting experience, especially raising the seed round. And then the Series A was unique just because of the timing of 2021 was kind of crazy fundraising environment. But, you know, when we started the company, we didn't have any connections, right? We had didn't know anybody. And the advice that I always give to founders is obviously, first of all, focus on running your business. And usually I, whenever people come to me asking for advice about, you know, how to fundraise, the first thing I'm asking them is, why are you fundraising uh, instead of just focusing on the business? So those are the first things I'll just point out. But for us, you know, we had already gotten the marketplace off the ground. We had our first, you know, handful, maybe five, 10 locations that we were managing. We were probably processing in the range of like $35,000, $40,000 a month in gross parking payments at the time. And, you know, we moved to San Francisco in August of 2018 after we started really getting into the full stack marketplace that we do now. Then we started fundraising in sort of February ish timeframe of 2019. And the way that we did this was, I, I think, worked really well where we, framed it as, hey, we want to raise an angel round. And we went out to a bunch of angel investors. And again, we didn't really know anybody. 
And so it was a lot of cold outreach and just me following people on Twitter, me finding people's emails and reaching out to them cold. And I you know, think that the perfect example of this is this investor of ours, Ryan Delk, who has invested in every single round that AirGarage has raised and is always one of our biggest supporters. I found him on Twitter, I'm sure, and then you know, emailed him, cold emailed him at 10.30 p.m. on a Tuesday or something like that. And within you know seven minutes, he responded and immediately fired off some questions. And then we went back and forth really quickly via email. And then he was you know, basically like, okay, this sounds interesting. Come to my office at 7 a.m. tomorrow for coffee. And it's like, that's what I always tell founders. That is the benefit of being in San Francisco is if you're in the city and you have that density of people around you, you can just show up for a 7 a.m. coffee after a 10.30 p.m. cold email and then pitch somebody. And really at that point, right, they're believing in you as a person and the way that they're understanding if they believe in you, it's by interrogating you about the business and seeing if you have thought through every single possible edge case and really truly explored the idea maze. Um, so, you know, that was interesting in that like we started out with just cold outreaching all these angel investors in the spring of 2019, and then eventually basically coalesced all of them and saved all their intros for the same point. And then basically had them introduce us to seed stage venture firms uh, you know, basically in the first or second week of April, all at the same time, and then raised our seed round, quote unquote, in a week from those venture firms, right? So it was a lot of preparation and work and practice and, you know, finding, fine tuning the pitch with those angel investors to then raise that seed round. But then that's how you, you know, quote unquote, raise a round in a week. Well, that's uh, great. Thanks for sharing with us on that. I actually had a question from my, uh, from a founder that asked uh, in advance and they were asking or, or mentioned as far as, you know, about operating in a, uh, and parking in a, uh, I would say like an industry or market that might not be as quote unquote, like sexy or as, uh, you know, kind of like tr- trending at the, at the moment in time, uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, venture capital, you know, did, did you have any uh, challenges around that and maybe kind of like educating and, uh, you know, some, some investors and kind of getting them excited about the opportunity or. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, at our series a, I think we say we got introduced to like 30 different venture firms all at the same time, probably five to seven of those immediately were just writing off, hey, we're not interested in parking. And I think that that's where the value of meeting investors before you're actually fundraising comes in, because it's really easy, especially when it was 2021 and everybody's crazy busy trying to do rounds. It's really easy to look at something and say, I don't know anything about this space. I don't know why it's interesting. I'm just not going to take a meeting. And so that's where educating people instead of just going in cold as a pitch helps a lot with these things. And I think that you know there's been a little bit of an investor mindset mindset shift in the last few years about these types of things. Where the benefit that I think we have, you know, we operate in an unsexy industry, but we are doing it in a very technologically forward way that is very differentiated from pretty much anything else anybody is doing in the industry. And the benefit that we have is it's a real business, right? Like from day one, we have been making money from every contract contract that we've signed. We don't have any locations that are negative in terms of the PL that they drive for the business. So we've always been very focused on unit economics and building a sustainable business and making sure all of that works. And so, you know, there's certain subsets of investors where they're excited about the next flashy AI or crypto or consumer thing, which is cool. And then they sort of you know, there's a different group of investors where they want to invest in real physical world businesses that are actually driving revenue and things like that. And that's, you know, you just have to sort of learn to separate those people and not be offended that the people that are looking at the next AI thing are not interested in your sexy, un- unsexy marketplace, you know, sort of business, right? And that's something you just have to accept. Personally, I love running a business in an un- unsexy way or an unsexy industry. And I will say one of our investors um, who's on our board you know, at one point when crypto was going through some really turbulent times, he has, you know, crypto companies in his portfolio. He and I were on a just one-on-one conversation. He said something to the effect of like, you know, 
everybody else in like these other industries that are like, you know, hot or not hot at any given time. They're just like, you know, the bottles floating on the the waves of the ocean being carried by the currents and sort of, you know, at the whim of the the industry that they're they're in ocean currents wise. And you guys are just kind of like just keep going because there's really not any currents in this industry and there's not some crazy wave that you're either riding or crashing on. Uh, and I, I think about that a lot where it's, you know, hey, the market is pretty stable and it's just a matter of can we go after it? And everything that we do is therefore within our control to affect the outcome of instead of it being, hey, the, the industry is changing so rapidly around us that no matter what we do, we can't really gain any traction, right? So I definitely appreciate operating in an uh, unsexy market. Yeah, certainly. It's going to be a super helpful. So appreciate it. Cool. So we're just going to jump into the uh, group Q&A here too. Um, hey, uh, Michael, do you uh, want to come on? Thank you. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thanks for taking the time and congrats on the success. I had a question about the supply side. You went from originally approaching people, homeowners or churches with no existing systems to approaching properties with what you described as like five different platforms that they're using and you somehow got them to move over to your platform. Um, did you try to ever integrate with their existing systems or did you know upfront that they needed to switch over to yours? And I guess the second part of that question, what advice do you have for other marketplaces that are trying to work with the supply side that might have existing platforms um, asking for a friend? Yeah. Um, I think that obviously what worked for us is not necessarily going to work for everybody. And that's why, you know, I highlighted the examples of Uber and, you know, Open Door and Lyft and companies that had a very different scaling trajectory than we did in terms of how they went to market. For us, it's, it's you know, a very unique situation where the real estate owner, you know, they own the asset and then they're always effectively hiring a management company to run that asset. And the management company, generally speaking, is the people bringing in their, you know, disparate systems. And so in some sense, we're going to the owners. There's been a lot of history of technology companies that have been started in the parking industry and tried to change the industry. And the way that they've tried to do that over the last 20 years before Air Garage was basically saying, you know, we're software engineers. We know how to build software. We know how to build technology, but we don't want to do the hard distribution stuff. And we don't want to do the hard operational stuff of operating a parking lot, like cleaning and sweeping and, you know, picking up trash and stuff. And so what we're going to do instead of just sell our software to the existing parking management companies, because they already have the relationship with the owner, and that's the fastest way for us to go to market. And what we found is like, you just see time and time again, that has been tried. And what winds up happening is two things. First of all, it's much harder to distribute to those existing parking companies than you would think, because they're all competitors. And so they don't want to be using the same platform. So it's hard to get a ton of market present penetration. And even if you do, like something like Spot Hero has, where Spot Hero is pretty common now, and most parking operators work with Spot Hero, you don't really like get that much of the economic transaction value because most of it is locked away in those sort of legacy systems. And so, you know, I will say at the beginning, we have always had the like buy and build dilemma of do we buy this thing? Do we build this thing? And in the beginning, we really tried to buy things and tried to do these integrations and tried to work with third parties. And what we just found time and time again is that even the companies that claim to be technology forward in the industry, in the parking industry are super backwards, basically no real technical chops. They're not really software engineering or technology companies, technology companies like you would think of in the traditional Silicon Valley sense. Like, I mean, there's one that we were trying to integrate with 
Uh, and you know, they didn't even have like an API. It was like some atom feed that we had to scrape basically and scrape emails and piece together the email scraping with their atom feed that they were giving us in order to like make things work because they're selling their technology to parking companies who don't even have a way to integrate with an API. So why would they have an API? Right. Um, and so, yeah, we've just found time and time again, that the existing technology and stuff that exists in the industry isn't up to par of where we think it needs to be. And so we've always just had to build the things ourselves in order to make it fully function. And now I'm really glad that we made that investment because based on that foundation that we built, that we had to build at the beginning, which is all the basic stuff, like how do you have the back end move the money around? How do you do accept payments from drivers? How do you do enforcement? The thing I always talk about is, you know, there's sort of this era of Air Garage's history where we were doing this hot swap phase, where it's just how do you replace everything that they already have with our own system? and basically do it without them noticing. So the scene that I always imagine is the scene in Indiana Jones where he's in the, you know, the uh, temple and he's basically trying to swap out the like golden skull for a bag of sand without setting off the booby traps. It's like, that's what we were trying to do is basically look like and act like and talk like a traditional parking manager company. But it turns out we actually have all this cool technology that's powering everything, but the owner doesn't care about that, right? They don't care about the basic technology. And now what they do care about is all the stuff that we've been able to build on top of that technology, like the dynamic pricing system, the license plate reading camera system, the enforcement system, all these things that exist only because that foundation exists in the first place. So it's going to depend all, a lot, obviously, on what customers want. But for us, what we knew customers want at the end of the day, the owners of the real estate is to maximize, they, they want three things. They want to maximize the income of the property that they have. And they want to have a reliable partner that they can trust. And they want to make sure that it's a good experience for their tenants and their customers and things like that. And we knew that in the long run, all of those things would be best served by having a unified single owner platform of a company that is doing both the technology and the operations. My big caveat there is that may not be true in every industry. So it's really just about understanding what a customer wants and then delivering on that. Thank you. Great question. Thanks, Michael. Hey, uh, Dimitri, do you uh, want to come on? Thanks, Mike. I have a question for you uh, about um, what your kind of objective function in your dynamic pricing exercises. Like, what are you trying to maximize? Is it revenue? Is it some sort of utilization? Is it some sort of long-term revenue? So, what are you what are you kind of learning when you're wiggling the price around for you know two customers that look very much alike? Yeah, what we're optimizing for is basically long-term value of the property for the owner, which then implies on our end, the long-term revenue of the property. And, and the reason I say long-term value of the property for the owner is that you have to look at each property on an individual basis where if it's a property with parking, but it's also retail and office and residential, you can't just jack up the parking rates because then you're going to piss off the office tenants and the retail tenants and their customers and the residential tenants, right? So it's about for them looking at the holistic picture of how are we going to maximize the long-term revenue of this property and looking at every case on a case-by-case -case basis to do that. And the thing I always tell owners, right, is the classic phrase, if you don't want to cut off your nose despite your face, so we don't want to jack up your parking rates 3x and then find out that all your tenants are now upset, right? So it's really about long-term value of the property in a parking in a property that is pure paid parking. There's no other thing attached to it. Long-term value of the property is still a good indicator of that because really for long-term revenue to be healthy there, you know, you could sure you could triple rates in month one. And then now you've increased your revenue by three X for the first month. But then the question is, are people going to keep coming back or are they going to be turned away because now your rates are not competitive for the area or because you're just charging so much that people are disincentivized from parking there. So it really is about long-term revenue. And there's a lot of metrics that go into that about retention of drivers 
the rates that are being paid, how long people are parking for, the enforcement rates, things like that, that flow into that. But it really is about like long-term sustainability of, of the revenue that we're increasing because we've run experiments before where to find the optimal price, you inherently have to go a little bit past where you think you should be. And then you start to see what is the point of diminishing returns on that price that you're now charging. And so, you know, we've seen in our experiments that you can see, hey, at this point, this price point, that is when you start to see all the downstream metrics take a negative hit, even though you are getting more revenue. So you need to dial it back to this range that is actually the optimal range. But it, start, but it sounds like all your experiments are sort of kind of short run and they're measuring like a short run price response. How do you get at the long run stuff? Yeah, normally the, the experiments that we run are run for like six to eight weeks at a time. Okay. So you'll see basically we'll have four different buckets. And during those four, those six to eight weeks, 25% of drivers are getting put into each of those buckets. And then we're seeing over those eight weeks, how are people responding? And the other thing I'll point out is that once you get put into a bucket, we then are like keeping you in that bucket. So you'll always get shown that rate. So over those eight weeks or over the long term, we'll see which rates you were being shown and compare that versus the control group that exists. So we're always comparing against some sort of control group. So when we take over a parking facility, say they were charging $4 an hour before up to $30 for the day, that's the control group. So 25% of people are going to get shown that rate. And then 25% are going to get shown like a $5 rate that increases to $8 per hour with still that 30 day, $30 per day cap. And then the next group is going to get shown seven to nine. And the next group is going to get you know shown and with different functions and things like that in terms of how they scale with occupancy. Uh, so then we're measuring over a decently long chunk of time, but then it's all, it's really like this ongoing experiment. So even after out of those four rates, we pick a winning rate, we'll then run a next experiment for another eight weeks. That basically is that experiment versus new experiments. And then once we kind of decide after a few of those experiments that this is kind of the optimal rate to be charging, even in the background at all times, there'll be, you know, 80% of drivers will get shown that new default rate and then 10% and 10% will get shown two other rates that we're constantly testing against those in order to make sure that this is truly the optimal rate because, you know, seasonality is a thing and events are a thing and weather is a thing. So you need to always be testing your pricing, which is something that's very new to the industry because most companies in the industry, it's just Let's pick a price and stick with it for a year and it never changes. Fantastic. Thank you. We've been talking about uh, pricing and experimentation quite a bit here in the community lately. So, well, cool. So we're almost out of time here, but uh, wow, this is uh, such a great uh, chat. So thanks for joining us here, uh, Jonathan. This is a really great to, you know, do a deep dive into uh, Air Garage and uh, we're all probably uh, a lot more excited about the uh, parking space than, uh, than when we kind of started the uh, group chat. So this is definitely uh, fun. You know, actually I had a one last question for you before we wrap things up though and uh, myself. Now, if you could go right back to before you, uh, you started Air Garage, you know, what would you uh, tell yourself about marketplaces specifically? I don't know if this is marketplace specific enough for you, but I think it's advice that I would give to myself right off the bat, which is that you can do everything faster than what you think you can. I mean, there's so much of Air Garage's history where we just, you know, the struggle of being a first time founder is that you just don't know what you don't know and you don't know how fast fast is. And so one of the most beneficial things that you can do for yourself is surround yourself with other people that have done it before or seen it before so that they're constantly telling you you're not going fast enough or you know maybe if you're going too fast i don't know i haven't experienced that um but you know in the early days i remember one of our first board meetings after our seed round we were so excited about the progress that we had made and one of the investors that was at the board meeting basically looked at us and said yeah that's okay but like you could have done more and i think that that's the right mindset to have and there's so many points in history in air garage history where we could have done more faster if we had only known or only questioned ourselves more or only pushed ourselves harder. 
uh, you know, like the pivot that we made from driveway rentals to full service parking management was a good example. We also made a pivot that somebody else mentioned earlier that we went from working with, you know, churches and small businesses and opening up their parking lots for ancillary revenue to really now managing these tier one parking properties that are like downtown urban parking lots and garages could have done that faster if we had only realized or known that the opportunity was out there. And the only thing holding us back really was ourselves at every single point and probably still true today, you know, even in the last year, like we've been pushing ourselves to accelerate and ask more of ourselves and have higher expectations. And I think the biggest, the biggest thing you can do for yourself when starting any business and especially a marketplace is to have unreasonably high expectations for yourself and what you're trying to achieve with the business and push yourself to achieve those faster. So that's great parting advice to leave us with here. So we once again, really appreciate it. And then last but not least, time for a quick plug. Where can we keep up with you at? Yeah, I am on Twitter. I'm not super active on Twitter. I mostly am a lurker on Twitter, which is my first name, last name, Jonathan Barkle. And then, you know, airgarage.com is our, our website. If anyone wants to reach out, my email is just jonathan at airgarage.com. Awesome. We appreciate it once again. And you'll have uh, probably quite a few uh, marketplace founders and teams uh, kind of coming your way as followers. So thanks again for the awesome chat, uh, Jonathan. And uh, thanks everyone for the uh, great questions today. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.